Let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the good shepherd. And you tell us in John's gospel that your sheep hear your voice and follow you. And so we pray that we would hear your voice, the voice of our master and our God. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring life to our hearts, our souls and our minds. Bless us, we pray in your own name. Amen. Amen. Well, each week we preach through a different section of the Bible. We're working through Paul's letter to the Romans at the moment. So if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Children, Romans is... In the New Testament, you go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. Follow on. So it's the, there we go, yeah, not heard that before. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans, follow on. So it's the first of Paul's letters, at least as they're arranged in our Bibles. Not the first that he wrote, but the first as it comes in our Bibles. And we're into chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 12. Actually, because the light is really annoying me, I'm going to move a bit to the right. And then it'll just follow me, won't it? And then it'll be a bit later. (laughs) There you go, Romans 2 and verse 12. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in his word. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, where their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who are born idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonour God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Amen. What do we make of that? Perhaps we're used to having the Bible read in a church service. Perhaps you're you're new to the Bible. And that may not be a passage that kind of leapt out and grabbed you. It's not a parable of Jesus full of kind of colourful picture imagery. It's not a psalm 
a great song. It's not a rollicking story. It seems, and in fact is, a pretty, pretty dense, woven argument. And yet, of course, these are the words of the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God-breathed. So if you want to hear the Spirit's voice in all his fullness, we need to listen to all the ways he speaks. Hence this term, for the first few weeks at least, working through this book of Romans. And it can seem a very strange world. There's a lot in there about religious practices, circumcision, the law, temples. And we live, it would seem, in a very unreligious society. Now, there's people from so many different nations here. So I, I've got to confess, I am, um, I'm, I'm speaking, I suppose, predominantly about the United Kingdom, you know, the world that I know best. It can seem very unreligious. And yet there's a whole bunch of you here this morning, I suspect, who have just had one of the most religious weeks of your life. Surrounded by people who are incredibly religious with an intensity that you may not experience again here in Leeds. I'm speaking to you if you're a fresher and you just got off the back of Freshers Week. Believe it or not, that is going to be one of the most intensely religious weeks you will ever experience. At least if it was anything like my Freshers Week was many years ago. Now that doesn't seem, I suspect, immediately obvious. I suspect you were not absolutely kind of crowded by Christians, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Jews, Zoroastrians and all the rest of it. People who subscribe to one of the kind of the major world religions seem to be in decline. Again, at least in the UK, certainly not worldwide. But to reduce religions to the kind of four or five you study at primary school will be really simplistic. Far too simplistic for Paul, for the Bible. Have you ever asked yourself, what, what do religions do? What, what, what makes something a religion? What are they about? I think Paul has an answer for that here in Romans. Religions are all about dealing with our deep down fear. A fear that comes from our knowledge of our guilt and what the Bible would call our sin. At the end of chapter one of this letter, Paul, speaking about all humanity, chapter 1, verse 32, do you see it there? He describes us in this way, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things, by which he means all sorts of, all the kind of bad things we do, he's just listed them, our greed, our envy, our slander, our gossip, our insolence, our disinterest in God. Though, Paul says, though people know God's righteous decree, that those who do those things deserve to die, they not only do them, but praise others who do them. What's he saying there? Paul's saying that all of us, deep down, doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian, doesn't matter if you subscribe to one of those kind of major religions, all of us, deep down, know we haven't lived as we ought to have lived. We have this sense of guilt. And to cope with it, we create religions. We find ways of approving it, dealing with it. Religions are all about showing I'm okay, I've done enough. They're ways of proving ourselves, to use Paul's language in Romans, justifying ourselves, saying, yes, I am enough, I've done enough. Uh, Romans, in, in that sense, is a letter not just of theology but psychology. I think Paul understands human beings far better than many modern counsellors. We're incessantly trying to prove we're okay. Think back to Freshers' Week. 
Was it not absolutely full of people trying to show, yeah, look, I'm okay, putting on a good face. I know my way around town. I know the best pubs, clubs. I'm captain of the sports team. I'm, whatever world you're in, it'll have its heroes. The people who are desperately trying to show they're okay. I'm okay because I'm beautiful. I'm okay because I'm wealthy. I'm okay because I'm funny. I'm okay because I'm hilariously drunk. I'm okay because I'm a massive lad. I'm okay because on and on it goes. We're just trying to show, yeah, I'm okay. And it all comes, Paul says, from this deep anxiety down in the depths of our souls that knows we're really not. In the olden days, people turned to religions. Nowadays, those religions are kind of hidden a bit more subtly, I guess, in the UK. But we're trying to prove we're okay to our parents, to our friends, to our peers, and most of all, to ourselves. And Paul, is, Paul in this part of his, his letter to the Romans, is writing to people who are Christians. Remember, this letter is going to a church and saying to them, you've really got to understand that there is no way of actually being okay with God other than trusting in Jesus. That his righteousness will come back to that. That, that. that his death, that the gospel that I'm explaining to you is the only way. And you really need it. And so part of what he's trying to do in chapter 2, and uh, the passage we just read, is say, look, all these other kind of things you go to to try and make yourself okay, they're just not going to work. They won't work. It's serious. Throughout chapter 1 and 2, he's talked about the fact that one day we'll face God and we'll be judged. That'll be a day of wrath, he has said. Fury. He uses some really intense language. And so this does matter. This does matter. We need a way of arriving at that judgment day, be it on our deaths or when Christ returns, a way that means that the Lord God in all his holiness will look at us and say, yes, you are okay. And that will not be found in any other way than trusting in the Lord Jesus. And so what he's trying to do is strip away all the other masks here in chapter two. Two false righteousnesses, two wrong ways that Paul imagines his, his hearers turning to. The first person says, no, no I'm, okay, I'm okay because I didn't know. I'm okay because I didn't know. I didn't know all that stuff was wrong. This is verses 12 through 16. It's essentially an excuse. I'm okay, says this person, because I didn't know how I was meant to live. I've never seen a Bible. I've never met an annoying Christian. No one's ever knocked on my door and said, do you want to believe in Jesus? And all, you know, just didn't know. Sometimes this comes up when you, you know, someone's asked me this question, I think already this, this term. You know, what about the person who's never heard? Well, let's walk through the steps. Verse 12. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, the law there um, Paul is talking about is that essentially the word of God, particularly how we're meant to live. Love God, love neighbour would be the summary. And what he's saying in verse 12 is, okay, there's, there's two types of people. There are those who actually have essentially the Bible, the Old Testament, and those who don't. And God is fair. God is fair. If you don't have the Bible, you won't be held accountable for not believing everything in the Bible. Okay, so um, you live somewhere and there's never been a church and the gospel's never been preached. You're not going to get to Judgment Day and be asked, why did you not join a church? Because quite rightly, you can say, what's a church? Paul said, that's, that's fine. What matters is how you've lived, verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous. It's not about what you know, but those who do the law who will be justified, to whom God will say, yes, you're right with me. You can come in. 
Now, at this point, you say, well, okay, great. So for those who've never heard, they'll be all right, you know, never knew. Paul says, hang on. Hang on. Let's turn to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles, children, just means those who aren't Jews. Remember, the Jews, the Israelites, were those who God sent all the prophets to through the Old Testament. They had the, the, the word of God, the Bible. And the Gentiles was, I imagine, almost all of us in this room. Might be one or two Jewish people here, but most of us are Gentiles. I'm certainly a Gentile. What about them? Can we just say, well, I never knew? No, says Paul. Because, verse 14, Gentiles, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And this is the crucial bit. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts. Every human being, Paul says, whether they ever heard of a Bible or Jesus or church, every human being has stamped in their hearts, knows just because of the way God has made them in his image, everyone knows God's basic standards of right and wrong. And actually, we, we know that's true, don't we? Do you have to be a Christian to know that murder is wrong? Of course not. If you read the book of Genesis, where does God say don't murder? Where does God say don't commit adultery in Genesis? Doesn't. So I mean, it was okay all the way through the years of Genesis, right until Exodus comes and the Ten Commandments are given at Mount Sinai. Totally okay to murder till then. Okay to steal. Okay, of course not. Because these kind of core laws, what someone has called the moral law of God, so not the kind of ones in the Old Testament about not eating prawns and that kind of thing. There's a, these come later. They're added later. They're ceremonial laws. We'll talk about them another time. But this kind of moral law, how you're meant to live a good life, it's stamped on your hearts. Every human being has it. And therefore, there is nobody in all of history or all of creation who doesn't know. Just wave it into you. Can't help it. Sometimes people, people who are atheists who don't believe in God come along and say, I don't need you Christians. I don't need the Bible to tell me murder is wrong. As if that somehow is a knockdown argument against Christianity. You want to say, exactly. Of course you don't. Of course you don't. You already know it's wrong. You already know anger is wrong. Jealousy is wrong. I'm not denying you don't know that. Your problem isn't knowledge. It's that you, like me, haven't actually kept that law. Verse 13, it's about doing, not just knowing. Uh, incidentally, on that, do you think as, as Christians, we, we can be a bit more front foot. Sometimes we get really intimidated by people who sort of pose as intellectual atheists. And... When the atheist comes to you and says, I don't need the Bible or your funny religion to tell me that murder is wrong. You want to say, yeah, sure, I know that. And I'll tell you why murder is wrong, because God is a God of life and he's put his image on all people. So everybody is sacred. They have value, whatever their creed or colour or gender, whatever their ability, whatever their age. Every human being has value. But sorry, on your system, my friend, the atheist, where all we are is dust that is accidentally stuck together in a clump of molecules you call a human being. Why do you have value? On your system, where everything is survival of the fittest, why is murder wrong? You can tell me you don't like it, but why is it wrong? It's a horrible killer called Charles Manson, 
few decades back now, really committed some really horrible murders. And uh, an Oxford scholar, he used to be an MI6, he became a professor at Oxford after, um, after a while, really studied him. And this, this, this guy, uh, called Arcee Zainer, he was a, an expert um, in various sort of religions and worldviews and all the rest of it. And he turned his attention to, to Manson. And everyone was wanted to say, Charles Manson is mad. The way he's done these things, he's totally mad. And, and Zainer sort of studied him and, and his thoughts and his, and his writings, Manson's writings and his speeches. And it's actually, he's not mad. You see, Z- Manson, the murderer, he believed that actually there was no God to whom we're accountable. He thought we were all kind of one. Now, his oneness was about spirit, not matter, but that doesn't matter. Essentially, that the point is, there's no judgment day. We're just animals. Who cares how we live? Why shouldn't I murder? We're just space dust. You don't complain when two rocks smash into each other and break. You don't complain when one line kills another. We're just beasts. And Zyner, the scholar's point was, you can't call, you can't call Manson mad. He is being horribly, ruthlessly consistent. What do you expect when you spend years and years, decades and decades, telling people they're just dust, they're just accidents, they are, have no value? They're just the product of blind forces of evolution. Nature, tooth and claw. What do you expect when some of them then live it out? And yet we know deep down it is wrong, don't we? We know deep down it's wrong. Atheism makes no sense. This law is written on our hearts. We know we are guilty. So it won't be good enough. No one will be able to say on that day, I just didn't know. The second person comes along in verses 17 to 29. He doesn't say, no, I'm okay because I don't know. He says, I don't know because I don't need the gospel. Sorry, he says, I'm okay because I don't need the gospel. I'm okay. I don't need the gospel. And you see in verse 17, Paul turns to, to, to the Jew. Now, Paul is not anti-Semitic. Paul is a Jew. Okay? And in this letter, he longs for, for his brothers and sisters to put, to put their trust in Jesus. So this isn't some rant against the Jews by any means. But he's turning to the very people who ought to know best and sees that in his day, for many of them, they're not trusting Jesus because two reasons. The first one is they say, I know already how to live. Verse 17, you call yourself a Jew. You rely on the law. You've got the Old Testament. You know how Isaiah is and Moses. You know the stories of Exodus and Esther. You know God's will. You approve what is excellent. You, you meet each week in your religious gathering and say, yes, murder's wrong and stealing is wrong. And You set yourself up as a teacher. Oh, there's people out there in the world not living, honouring God. Aren't they awful? But verse 21, you who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? And then this whole list of questions. You, you preach against stealing and you steal. You preach against murder and you get angry. You boast in the law. You say, we've got the word of God. We are his chosen people. And you dishonour him. So badly, in fact, that by verse 24, Paul says, and he quotes from the Old Testament here, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. People say that God, <laughs> the God of the Israelites, is a joke. Look how they live. What's banging on about how holy their God is? Look at their lives. They're worse than us. Now that is a word to the church as well, isn't it? That is a word to the church. 
in the last couple of weeks. Uh, one of my friends, long, long, long time, 20 odd years, minister, orthodox, preaching the word week by week. I had to step back from ministry because it turned out he'd been sleeping with all sorts of other people who weren't his wife for many years. Another minister a few years back I can think of. I used to read his books, great preacher, great teacher. Towards the end of his life, it turned out he'd spent decades sleeping with members of his congregation. It's that kind of hypocrisy that brings the gospel into disrepute, isn't it? And that is what Paul's getting at here. Just because you know a bunch of stuff, don't think you're okay. I think it's probably a danger for us. We are a church who, I was going to say, prides ourselves. That gives it away, doesn't it? On putting the Bible at the centre of things. You know, we're not like those liberal churches that don't know right from wrong. We're not like those liberal churches who don't put the word of God central. Paul says, take care. What are you actually trusting in? Are you actually clinging to Jesus? He's my only hope in life and death. Or are you clinging in some way to your own righteousness? I'm not that bad. Look what I know. Or if it's not what you know, Paul says, and this is verses 25 to 29, this time that the Jew is trusting not in what they know, but what they have. Status symbols, in particular circumcision. Circumcision children was a sign. A bit like we have baptism now, it's a sign. A physical sign, a cutting off at the end of the flesh that, that was a sign that you belonged to God's people. And it was given by God. It is a good thing. Um, I haven't got time to explain this week why it's a good thing. But see, Paul isn't against it, verse 25. Circumcision indeed is of value. Why? Well, you'll see next week when Nick's preaching and I'm on my way. I'll leave that to him. It's one of the best things you can write in a sermon script. We'll start that next week. So there's nothing wrong with circumcision, but this sign that says, yes, I'm part of God's people, is utterly useless. In fact, he says it becomes uncircumcision, verse 25. He makes up a word. If actually you're living not at all like one of God's people. The sign itself is not a saving thing. And yet in, in Paul's day, many Jews have begun to believe that it was. One rabbi, God, Rabbi Levi, wrote, At the last, on the last day, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna, to hell, and will not let any circumcised man of Israel go down there. You hear it? Abraham will be there at the end of the day. If you're circumcised, you're safe. You're off to heaven. Who says Paul? It was never meant to be like that. To take the sign that you're part of God's people and then carry on just like somebody who doesn't know God at all. It's total hypocrisy. But like a, a, a woman having an affair or a man having an affair. And then getting out of bed, walking out the door, looking at their finger and saying, oh, wedding ring's still on, my marriage is fine. It's just a sign. A ring is a good thing. It's just a sign. It doesn't make the marriage okay. And so verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision, circumcision was always meant to be a spiritual thing, a physical sign of a spiritual reality. We just say that, by the way. Sometimes as Christians, we sort of split the Old Testament and New Testament apart as if Old Testament was kind of physical stuff and the New Testament is spiritual. No, says Paul, not at all. It was always meant to be a spiritual sign of a spiritual reality. Physical sign, sorry, of a spiritual reality. Very much a bit of an aside, but that is one of the reasons why we baptise children. 
People say you can't baptize a child, you don't know what they believe. Well, why were they circumcising children then? The person says, well, because that was just a physical sign, an outward sign. No, this is always meant to be a, a sign of a, a reality, a spiritual thing. The cutting off of sin, just like baptism, the washing away of sin. And God said, give it to the child on the eighth day. So if your argument against baptizing children is, we mustn't do that because it's a, you can't do it until we know what they believe, then it's an argument against circumcision, which God said to give to children. It's a bit of an aside. Anyway, circumcision, the outward sign, was always meant to be the outward sign of an internal reality. Again, for us as Christians, I guess few of us are Jewish, few of us have been circumcised, but turning up on the last day and saying, hey, I was baptized. It's not enough. It's not going to save you. Turn up and say, I was a member of Christchurch Central. I've got my little card. Whatever church it is you're a member of. See, what Paul's doing in this passage is driving home that the answer to our guilt and the judgment that awaits is not found in any way in a sentence that begins, I'm okay because I. That is our fundamental problem. If you think you'll be all right on the last day because you... It doesn't matter how you finish that sentence. We're already wrong. I'm okay because I have an excuse. I didn't really know. I'm okay because I was religious. I did absolutely loads of evangelism. I'm okay because I I never slept around before I, I got married. I'm okay because I'm a kind person. I'm okay because I was baptised. I'm okay because I grew up in a believing home. I'm okay because I took communion. I'm okay because I spoke in tongues. I'm okay because I uh, led the worship band. I'm okay because I'm on the committee of the CU. I'm okay because I, Paul says, stop it. Stop it. None of that is what makes you okay. Loads of that is great. Circumcision is a good thing. Good to be on the CU committee. Good to lead the worship band. Great to grow up in a Christian home. Brilliant to be baptised. All good things. But not things that make you okay. Paul is trying to convince us here, not so much that we're sinners. He's already done that in chapter one. But rather that there's no way to be righteous, declared okay by God, other than Jesus. And those are the two things you need in order to come to him, aren't they? You need to know you're a sinner and you need to know that other solutions don't work. Uh, one of my friends, uh, uh, a medical missionary uh, in an island off the African coast. And when COVID hit, initially the, the, the disease itself or the, the virus itself wasn't a massive problem. Young population, sadly, because of an, uh, you know, uh, a pretty early death rate. So on the whole, people were, were sort of fit and resisted it. They weren't densely packed together. So the disease itself wasn't a massive problem. But the president invented his own vaccine. The president, before he was in politics, was a DJ, which gives you an idea of how serious this, this vaccine was. That caused the problems. It was the wrong solution that caused the problem, more than the disease itself. Paul says, look, that, that's what you need to worry about. You are a sinner. You know that. You make sure you don't turn to wrong solutions. It is a sobering part of the letter. I think I said last week that if I, if I was choosing a part of the Bible, if I was choosing a part of the Bible to begin in a new venue in, I, I would probably choose something more upbeat, towards my shepherd. But this is the word of God. It's what we work through books to make sure I don't set the agenda. Paul is driving us to Jesus' righteousness. And the only answer to guilt and that deep down sense of our unworthiness is realising that he is worthy for us. 
still think about circumcision. It was a sign of cutting off, the idea of cutting off of sin, just like baptism, washing away of sin. Jesus turns up and even the devils call him the Holy One of God. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He is fully divine and yet fully man as well. And he is without sin. And yet he is circumcised. He receives this sign, Luke tells us, of the cutting off of sin. And then he is baptised later on. This sign of washing away of sin. Why? He has no sin to cut off, to wash away. He's the one man who didn't need circumcision and didn't need baptism. And yet he is circumcised and baptised. Why? For you. Jesus, do you remember, was baptised in the River Jordan. Hundreds of people came to John the Baptist to be baptised. And symbolically, as it were, the, the, the waters of the Jordan flowed over, over the sinners. And symbolically, the sin was washed away. They went in dirty, came out clean. Jesus went in clean, came out dirty. It's as if all the sin of his people was being put onto him. Jesus was saying, I will stand in their place. And so he lived that perfect life that we failed to do. He kept the law. He was the one person who could walk up to the gates of heaven and say, I'm okay because I loved you, Lord, heart, soul, mind and strength. I'm okay because I never sinned. I'm okay because... I loved my neighbour as myself. I'm okay because I devoted myself to prayer and worship. I'm okay because even my thought life was pure. I'm okay because I did it. The one man who could do that. And he says, instead of that, instead of just letting me walk to glory, angels trumpeting my righteousness, heroic welcome, instead, treat me like them, Father. Treat me like the guilty, the dirty, the stained. Cut me off. He went to the cross, bearing your sin and your shame, your guilt and your dirt. And he says, come to me. And in me, you will be complete. In me, you'll be okay. You will be righteous. You know this, don't you? But that is the only way to appear before God's judgment seat. In the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who offers it to you freely. And that changes your future and it changes your, your present. In many ways, I'm telling you, for many of you, I'm telling you things you already know. And yet, isn't it fascinating that Paul, writing to Christians, wants to explain the gospel to them in even greater depth? Because you never really move on from the gospel. You believe it, but you don't. You believe it, but not as much as you should do. We need waking up. These false righteousness stripping away. And as you get hold of this, it will kill off all this desire to prove yourselves another way. I was reading about the University of Pennsylvania uh, this week. University of Pennsylvania is an elite university in America, okay? So I think Nottingham University over here. (laughs) Not so much Leeds and Nottingham. I was in Nottingham, by the way, so that's a sort of just ongoing take with the students. Elite university. Uh, in 2013, there's this horrible run of, of suicides, a huge number of suicides amongst the students. Uh, and so they, they set up a task force to look into it. What, what on earth is going on? This is awful. And the task force came back and said, the problem is pen face. Pen face. P-E-W-N, pen face. And they explained it like this. Pen face 
is the practice of acting happy and self-assured even when you're sad or stressed. Students feel they have to not just be perfect academically, in their looks, in their um, social behaviour, but also make it look easy. Got to prove ourselves. Got to show I am an academic and I'm doing this easily. I've got to show I'm beautiful, then I'll be acceptable. I've got to be socially popular, then I'm okay. And it was crushing them because they knew they weren't okay. And tragically, it caused some just a total despair. That's what social media is all about, isn't it? Status symbols. Look at me. Look how many likes I've got. Look how many, look how perfect my life looks. I'm okay because I am fresh as week. Again, everyone's been at it. I'm a somebody. I'm okay because I know what I have. Just like the, the Jews in verses 17 to 29. I know the best bars. I, I know the right way to get a first. I know the right people. I know how to pick up people in the bar. I know, I know, I know. It's very religious. Or I have. I have the right status symbol. Wednesday night still sports night as it used to be 20 years ago yeah okay, I've got the right kit on from the sports club yeah I just I'm in aren't I I'm wearing the right clothes you, you might be really alternative and edgy but you're just being alternative and edgy in the way everyone else is <laughs> no one actually wants to be different on their own I'm in because I'm alternative and edgy just like everybody else I'm in because I drive a Jaguar I wear a smart shoot suit I've got a rainbow lanyard I'm totally woke I'm Left-wing voting, right-wing voting, whatever it is, I'm in because I. We're absolutely non-stop doing it. Paul says your psychology is betraying you. Striving and searching, working for this peace, for this enoughness, that although you might not realise it, it's all about trying to prove yourself ultimately to God on the last day. It won't work. Lay it down. And the only solution, again, is the loving arms of God. The American poet, Mary Carr, who, when she was 14, tried to overdose. She thought no one cared about me. Life's pointless. Tried to overdose. Her parents were out that evening. Thank God it didn't work. Her parents came home, didn't realise she tried to overdose, just thought she was ill, food poisoning. So some nursed her back to health. And eventually when she was unconscious again, they said, is there anything, honey, you think you could eat? And she said, oh, the only thing I could eat is a, is a plum. Yeah, but they lived in Texas and it wasn't plum season. And she wouldn't eat anything else and she fell back into, into sleep, into her consciousness. Next morning she woke up and there's a box of plums by her bed. Her father had driven out of the state, across the states, uh, up into Arkansas, where there were some plums, all night, all day, just to get her some plums. And she said this, it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck, the nectar running down your chin, and you snap out of it, or you are snapped out of it. As long as there are plums to eat, and somebody, anybody, who gives enough of her to haul them to you. And then she says, the resolution to keep going in life, she found. She summarised this, you don't earn it, it's given. You don't earn it, it's given. That's what Paul is saying in this great book of Romans. Your enoughness, your okayness, it's not earned, it's given by an even greater father through an even greater son. Jesus and his righteousness, it cost him not a night's drive, but his life. Cast into the grave, facing the furious wrath of the Father, but out of love. And so in him, you can stand complete, safe. No need to prove yourself anywhere, to anyone, including yourself, and utterly safe on the last day. 
to stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. Your righteousness, your salvation, you don't earn it, it is given. And he says to you this morning, receive it, freely receive it. No more doing, just take. Jesus Christ has died for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we want to lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. We're so sorry for the number of ways we try to prove ourselves, uh, to cover up our sin, when actually all we need to do is come out of the bush like Adam and Eve and be met by you in grace and mercy. You are the Father who welcomes home the prodigal son running across the fields. And so we pray for the great gift of faith to trust in Christ alone. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have lived every inch of the life we should have lived and were willing to die the utterly horrific death we should have died and now freely in love to welcome us home. Bless us, we pray, in your own sweet name. Amen.